Okay, let's just bow our hearts, shall we, as we uh, come to God's Word together. Father, we do just give you this time and ask that, Lord, you open our eyes. And, Lord, just take away from our hearts, Lord, any hardness. Lord, any preconceived ideas, Lord, that would stop us from receiving what you have for us this morning. Lord, just help us to be open. And, Father, speak, speak to each one of us, we pray. Uh, Lord, reveal yourself through your word to us this morning. Father, just take my words and use them uh, for your glory. That, Lord, we grow together this morning. And, Lord, we have this privilege of growing together in knowledge and grace. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, so, you know, it's such a, a blessing when we get to, to pray together. Um, and even just, just this morning, you know, just to be together. Um, I, I love Saturdays. Um, Partly because I don't have to get up and go to work, but it's just—it's a lovely day for us as a family. As a family, we just look forward to that time we can spend together, you know. And as we were just praying then, I just thought, you know, in the courts of heaven, you know, how much the Lord love it when we get to the first day of the week and all around the world His people meet together. You know, it's that family time, uh, and it is so special. We should just treasure these opportunities uh, that we have. Well, we've come to the end of this incredible journey um, through the book of Genesis, you know, starting right back, looking at the beginning of everything. You know, it was when the beginning began is really where we start. You know, there was nothing before that. You know, the world has got all sorts of uh, strange notions of history, uh, and we have this, this redundant word, really, that seems to be used so often, a prehistoric there is no such thing because the beginning of history is recorded in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing before that. that. That's when time, space, matter, everything, as far as we're concerned, that's where it all began. There is no prehistory because history begins at that point. It's interesting how the world likes to tell us how so much about prehistoric times Times when nobody lived to recount or record, and yet we have so much information apparently available to us about these things. The world, of course, follows its own agenda. But we saw through the creation how God made a world that was perfect, a world where he wanted to walk with man. And of course, God will achieve his objective because everything that happened really between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 was a natural step to come full circle back to the same place. You see, in the garden, God and man walked together in harmony. And in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, so again, man will walk with God in perfect harmony. You know, God didn't fail. God's plan didn't suddenly fall apart. God had already allowed for all of the events of the last 6,000 years or so, when in the creation in the, the garden, God said to Adam that if he were to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. What an incredible act of grace. Have you ever thought about it that way? You see, God built in straight away a mechanism for man to be redeemed. You see, God built in straight away this possibility that if somebody were to die in man's place, and pay the price of man's sin, man could be purchased back. So although we look at death, and death we'll see in this chapter again this morning, you know, it's such a big thing for us. But it is, of course, the mechanism through which we can have life. It's the way that we can be restored into this relationship with God that God originally intended, and then through eternity, we will just marvel at God's plan. And really everything that's happened in between Genesis 3 and and Revelation 20 has just been the outworking of that plan. It's seeing the wickedness of man's heart. It's seeing what evil can really do. But also seeing, again, as we've mentioned a number of times this morning, the faithfulness of God. You know, the way that God had loved his creation so much that he wasn't just going to abandon it. And even though at one point in Genesis five, six, and onwards, we get down to just eight people left on the earth at the time of the flood. God doesn't walk away. God doesn't say, I've had enough. Because the Lord knew all those that were yet to come, you and I here this morning, and 
millions around the world and millions throughout history that have now had the whole gospel revelation and we realized that it was all about God sending his son. In Eden, of course, after Adam and Eve fell, it was the Lord that made the first blood sacrifice. These two, seemingly two lambs, their blood is shed and the Lord brings these coats to Adam and Eve to clothe them as this covering, temporary covering, an atonement, looking forward ultimately to the blood of the lamb that would be shed at Calvary. And all the whole of the Old Testament is this story of God working his plan out. There's a lovely little twist that we get, and I believe we, we see a lovely picture. Sorry, I'm just going to digress quickly here, but it's important. In the book of Job, a lot of people talk about Job and say it's the, you know, an account of, of the why and the how of suffering. Yeah, it doesn't answer those questions, and I don't believe it ever intended to do so. What we see in the book of Job is a test. It's Satan testing God and basically bringing the question to God that man will not love you just because you're God. That the challenge that Satan brings in the book of Job to Job is, or to, to God, and obviously Job is put through this, is that Job only loves God because of the blessings. You know, it's a really important point because once we get to Calvary, who in their right mind would refuse that blessing? Now, sadly, there are many. But there's no logical reason now for anybody to refuse salvation. All the work is done. We can see the benefit. It's a, a no-brainer, if I may use that expression, to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ because there is salvation in no other name. No one else has died to pay for our sin, but Jesus paid for the lot. On the cross, he cried out, paid in full to Delestai. So now it's very easy. But of course the question is, well, okay, but do we then just love God because of what we get? Do we love God because we get salvation back? Is it that we, we've run to God because we're so fearful of hell? Or do we love God purely because God is God? Well, that question had to be settled. And the book of Job really is that whole challenge. And what Job proves is that, yes, you can love God just because he is God. Now, Job understands many things, but he doesn't understand the full revelation of God's plan. And that question, therefore, is settled once and, and for all time. And I believe in the timing, the chronology of these things, that occurs just before God calls Abraham. Because once that question has been settled, that yes, it is possible to love God just because of who he is, then God sets out that plan of redemption to bring the Savior into the world. Now, of course, this alluded to back in Genesis 3.15, but really we see with the call of Abraham, God start this incredible plan. He brings a family around this promised seed to protect this line down to the Messiah. And the whole of the Old Testament from that point is this battle between the forces of the enemy, the forces of Satan and God. Satan trying to desperately stop the seed of the woman coming down to be born to provide a way of salvation. All through the battles that we read about in, in Canaan, we will you know, touch briefly, but obviously what happens from the point we are in this study as we move into the book of Exodus, you see there the, the challenge with Pharaoh, the, the new Pharaoh that arrives on the scene that doesn't know Joseph and brings this cruel hardship and bondage to the, to the children of Israel, that the male children are destroyed. They won't allow them to live. It's just an attack on this, this line. When they get back into Canaan, again, those battles that take place, all the way through, even up until David's time, dealing with the, the Nephilim, these giant beings that are inhabiting the land. And then many other issues, all the way down through the kings, sometimes getting down to just one or so in the line that would come down to the Messiah, but the Lord always makes a way. And then finally, we get down to the time of Jesus. And Jesus is born. And salvation is available to everybody. And now we're in this period of time where we're just waiting for the Lord to come back. There's still work to be done. But of course, a big part of this, this time we've been waiting, you know, why have we been waiting since Calvary? Well, a large part of that is to do with Israel still. It's because God had promised to repay them double or an exact likeness for their sins. And the prophecies that you look at in the book of Ezekiel and Leviticus and elsewhere all tie together to show us that 
God had decreed a precise number of days of judgment upon the nation of Israel. Well, you know, that's been fulfilled. And just as Ezekiel prophesied, they're back in their land. They're not yet believing, but they're there. And there's more returning. We'll talk about that in a short while as well. But we're now really close to the the conclusion of this whole incredible story, his story, history. Well, let's jump into this closing chapter then, chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. So we're going to see Jacob's kind of final goodbye. We saw that as we tailed off the last chapter, that blessing on his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as he adopts them as his own children. And of course, his own 12 sons then are called before Jacob and he pronounces these blessings over them that speak not just of the immediate context, but way off into the future and even to the millennial kingdom. These prophecies that are pronounced and it's incredible the, the parallels between Jacob's blessings and then not only the land grants they get, um, but the time we see with Moses and that Moses also prophesies over these 12 tribes. Speaking of their character and so on. And it's interesting, we commented briefly last time that their past conduct defined their future blessings. And it's very interesting because the same is true to an extent for us. This has nothing to do with salvation. Jacob's sons were not disinherited as sons, but they did lose out on some of the inheritance, some of the blessings that were there. You know, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of the, the judgment seat of Christ, where we'll all stand and we'll be judged according to our works. It's an awards ceremony. It's the Lord blessing and giving out rewards for our faithful service, if we've been faithful in that service, if we've put our treasure in heaven. But of course, if we've sown to the flesh, if we've put our treasure in the things of this life, well, First Corinthians 3 tells us that, you know, all those things, they'll be burnt up. We'll still be saved, but we'll have nothing. We'll have nothing to offer back to Jesus to say thank you. You know, and all the, the things that will take place during the millennial reign of Christ. We don't know yet what the Lord has planned. But there's various roles and responsibilities that will be given to his servants during that time. Scripture gives us enough information to know at least that. So the way we're living now is very much sowing for the future. You know, if those 12 sons of Jacob had realized at the time how their actions would affect their future, I wonder how different they'd have been. Well, we're in that position of knowing this. So how much more should these things affect the way that we live and given the fact as we've said already this morning that we've been given the holy spirit that we can walk in the way and so we read in verse one of chapter 50 joseph fell on his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him you know joseph now for these just such a long period of time of his life but you know away from his father he's now had these 17 years or so back with him and we're not told, but I'd imagine Joseph regularly had visited Jacob. Joseph, of course, had many other important affairs of state to be dealing with. He was the most important man in the land other than Pharaoh himself. There had been a lot of demand on his time, but no doubt, whenever he had opportunity, he'd have gone down to Goshen to visit the family and particularly to see his old dad, to catch up, just to sit and to chat. And Joseph now... We read that seven times I think we find that Joseph weeps. And this is one of one of the last, not the last, one of the last times that we find him weeping. And as his father dies, he kisses him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, this is interesting because typically in Egypt, it would have been the priest's that would have taken this responsibility. Because the priest had this belief, of course, of an afterlife and so on, and so much of the ceremony of this embalming process was getting the body ready for the next life. Well, Joseph doesn't go to the priest. We're told here specifically that he commanded his servants, the physicians. So these are people that are working for Joseph, and it's 
those with some sort of medical skill to do it. It, it. There's no religious part of this. There's a practical element to what's being done, but there's no religious element. Joseph isn't doing some sort of religious ceremony hoping that it's going to make it better for his father in eternity. Joseph's not that foolish. He knows enough of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of his father Jacob to know that the religions and the beliefs of Egypt are very far removed from the truth. You know, they had this whole process where typically they would try and take the brain out through the nostril and, and, and they, they perfected this, this skill. And then they'd put a slight incision in the body and they'd remove a number of the organs and so on. They would typically leave the heart in there and also leave the kidneys apparently uh, interesting, those organs are left and there's other reasons. Um, maybe if we do a study of Leviticus sometime, we'll talk a bit more about kidneys and the implication there. But they're there for purifying. We, we find a number of times in Scripture, particularly if you look in the King James, the Lord tries the reins. Um, it, it's the same word that we get renal from, as in regard to the kind of kidney. Because it's the idea of this purifying. But then we're told that for 40 days... They were fulfilled. So for 40 days, this kind of process goes on. This is for so fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him three score and ten days. So this is the Egyptians, we're told. And this was an, an amazing event because Jacob was really old. You remember when he goes to Pharaoh, he's 130 years old at that point. And Jacob, as we sorry, Pharaoh, as we commented, was probably somewhere in his forties. A lot of pharaohs didn't live much beyond that. And suddenly, this elderly man, somewhere in the region of a hundred years older than himself, walks in. And we said last or a couple of weeks ago that Jacob walks in and blesses Pharaoh on the way in, then blesses him on the way out. Well. Again, just mention this embalming. It's not this kind of like a modern embalming as such. But this was, again, as we've, I'm sure you're familiar with history, the whole practice the Egyptians have of, of mummification. Uh, and again, the reason they did this was preparing the body um, for the afterlife. Okay. But that's not what Joseph seems to be doing. But typically the body would have been packed in some sort of salt mixtures to dehydrate the body. And a part of this is to getting it ready seemingly for, for Joseph to travel to, back to the land of Canaan with Jacob's body to take it back into the land as Jacob had asked Joseph to do. And we read, And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die in my grave which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, and there shalt thou bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. Now, this is interesting because with Joseph here, we just see a real insight into his integrity here. Yeah, he's the second in command of the whole land, and yet he still goes and asks Pharaoh's permission. He doesn't just presume that this is okay to do this. You know, sadly, we, we live in a world now where so many people just presume their rights and, you know, everyone talks about their rights and so on. But Joseph doesn't assume or presume anything here. He actually goes before Pharaoh and asks this question, is it okay if I take my father back and bury him in this land? Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Great qualities. Humility and the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 45, verses 2 through 4, we read, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things you know again that, that whole idea that, that godly people should show forth that meekness and again it's been said many times that meekness is not weakness so many people just push themselves forward and even in his position here Joseph seemingly not trying to do that at all 
And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father, according as he made thee swear. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Notice that. This isn't just the family going up to bury their father, but a whole entourage, the leaders, the elders of the land of Egypt go as well. I mean, it gives you some idea of just kind of the way they revered and respected Jacob, this old man. And of course, the respect they'd had for Joseph as well. I mean, Joseph, of course, had saved their lives. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. This is a really big, big event. I mean, we're good in this country, aren't we, of putting on big state events. It's one of the things we do really well. It's sometimes, I think, fairly comical when you see reports on the news of other nations trying to put on big state events, and they don't quite always work out so well. But when we do it, this country, we do it very well indeed. Well, this was a big state event. There was much fanfare and noise made about this, I'm sure. and The whole of the land was aware of what was going on. And verse 8 says, And all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house, these are all the ones that go. And then we took only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. You know, maybe that was just a, a token from Joseph's perspective to, to say to Pharaoh, look, we are coming back. Pharaoh had been so blessed to have Joseph by his side. And maybe there, even at this time there was a question about, you know, would Joseph come back? Well, Joseph leaves the little ones and the flocks and everything there. But also there's a practical element that, you know, it wasn't probably the right opportunity, the right occasion to take the, the young children and all the herds and things. It would just not been practical. And verse 9 says, and There went up with him both chariots and horsemen. I mean, it's, we read these things quite quickly when we read through the text, but you can't probably get a big enough picture of just what this occasion was like. You know, there's chariots, horsemen everywhere, and it was a very great company. You know, people, as they passed en route, must have been looking at this incredible entourage going past, thinking, what is this? And we're told in verse 10 that they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. I'll show you in a moment where it is. It's just the, the north of the, uh, the Dead Sea. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, and there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And this is on top of the 70 days they've been mourning in the land of Egypt already. They now come, and for a further seven days. And seemingly this is with the Egyptians there at this point. I wonder how different the mourning was for the Egyptians and for the sons of Jacob. And of course, the sons of Jacob were the ones that really had cause to mourn. It was their father that had died. But they had this hope. Why was it Jacob wanted to go back to the land? Why was he wanted to be buried in the, the place of his fathers? Well, because he believed in resurrection. He believed that there was a day coming when he would be raised from the dead. And he wanted to be raised in the land of Israel. But for the Egyptians, of course, they had... Very mixed ideas about what happened after death. And for them, it was a really sad occasion. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning, and notice, by the way, that the inhabitants of the land were the Canaanites, they weren't Philistines, they weren't Palestinians, as uh, so on, they, they were Canaanites. They saw the mourning in the floor of Atad that they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of it was called Ebel Mizraim, which is beyond Jordan. There are actually some historical references to this event, that the nations in the land of Canaan were perplexed at this huge entourage that they came down, and so much so that they actually made preparations to do battle with Egypt following this. We'll talk maybe some other time about some of those things. Very interesting when you start to look at some of the historical uh, things that corroborate all of the things we read in Scripture. So typically, this is the route that had taken. They've gone along from Goshen, in that area, the Nile Delta. Across that top part, 
or for us as we would consider it the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, the uh, the southeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, going along and then going a little bit further round up the um, east side of the Dead Sea um, to this place. And this is where they stop. But then we're going to find that what happens is that Joseph and the brothers cross over into the land from there. And again, probably one of the reasons they went that route was to avoid the Philistines who were in the, the land. Um, a tad, if you're interested, just means thorn. This is the place they'd gone to, and that's for seven days this morning. And then we're told, and his sons did unto him according as he commanded them, for his sons carried him into the land of Canaan. So they cross over the Jordan. They cross over into the land. And they go on up, and we're told, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for a possession of a burying place of Ephron the Hittite before Mamre. Now you remember this place you've seen a number of times already, that this uh, cave of Machpelah was originally bought by Abraham. That was back in Genesis 23. Uh, that's when Sarah dies and he asks the sons of Heth if he can have a burying place in the land. And they said, yeah, go and have it, no problem. He says, well, no, I'm going to pay for it. And so he buys this piece of land and this becomes a burying place for Sarah. And of course, 400 shekels of silver is the price. Abraham later himself is then buried in the same place. Isaac and Rebekah are also buried there. And this is where Jacob also had buried Leah, his own wife. And this is where now Jacob said, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be buried. Now later, this particular location, we find that Herod's the great built a wall around the site. And when we get to the 8th century... Um, there were various monuments built over the sites in the 13th, 13th century. Uh, Muslim Mama Luke's, uh, conquered this area, including Hebron and so on. Uh, and they declared this place their own. They built a mosque on this location. Uh, and they've uh, typically forbidden entry to the Jews. In fact, Jews typically are only allowed entry 10 days out of the year, despite the fact that really everything about this is Jewish. There's no hint or anything really that there's any connection with Islam. Nevertheless, uh, this is the place today. Within this building is where this entrance to the cave uh, is believed to be. And uh, that's the inside of the place. And again, there's an entrance uh, place going down into this cave. Um, I'm not sure if people have actually gone down, and I'm sure some have tried. But if you go down there, you're going to find, obviously, a number of bones. Um, but you're going to find one that looks a lot better, better than the others because he was embalmed for 40 days. Um, so he's going to look in a little bit better condition uh, than the others were. And um, so with all the, the, the bones that are there, Jacob will probably be the best-looking one amongst the dead. Verse 14, though, we read, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went with him up to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly require us all the evil which we did unto him. It's incredible, given all that's happened, that the brothers now think, well, Joseph's now going to get us. Dad's, dad's gone and there's kind of no accountability for, for Joseph now. So, so now, now we're in real trouble. You know, despite all that Joseph has done for them, despite all he's shown them, the love that he's shown them, they still are looking at this. And of course, you know, they look back through the family history. Esau had made those death threats to um, Jacob that, you know, when, uh, you know, when my dad's dead, you're going to get it, basically. Uh, and the boys here, Joseph's brothers, fearful of what's going to happen next. And we're told, verse 16, that they sent a message unto Joseph saying, thy father did command before he died. Now, this seems to be totally fabricated. There's no suggestion that Jacob really did this. This seems to be what they are making up, the story they're making up. And this is what they're saying, that Jacob has said this, so shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants of the God of thy father. Now this is the last time we read that Joseph cries. The seven times. And Joseph wept when they spoke unto him. You know, for Joseph, this was a really, it's like a, I suppose, a, a dagger in the heart kind of feeling for him because clearly his brothers hadn't realized that he'd forgiven them. And they're going to him asking again to be forgiven. 
But you've got to think in the bigger picture here. What is it like for Jesus? When we continually go before him, feeling guilty, which is exactly the, the situation these brothers were. They were still feeling, that was the real root cause of it. It was their guilt. Well, for Jesus, he cried out on the cross, paid in full. It's done. Now, yes, we are to confess our sins. But it was all paid for. And if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, if we put our faith and trust with him, in him, We've been forgiven. You know, those feelings of guilt, they shouldn't be there. And you know, how much must grieve Jesus when we hold on to those things, not realizing that it's all been paid for, that we should walk now in this newness of life. We shouldn't be walking under a burden of things that happened previously in our lives. They doubted the forgiveness that was complete and it grieved Joseph and I'm sure the same thing applies to Jesus if we doubt if his forgiveness is complete and how many times do people do something they sin and they think well that's it Jesus Jesus can't forgive me for that and sometimes we allow our own minds to convince us that there is now a, a, a separation between us and Jesus now, once again, just to put this in context, John makes it very clear in First John that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We, we carry on sinning even as believers. We shouldn't, but we do. It's a natural part of this, this, this challenge, this battle we're facing between the flesh life and the spirit. We do sin, but that's the old life. Because John makes it very clear, that which is born of God does not sin. The new life that God has placed within us does not sin. The old life is already dead. It's gone. And we just need to keep sowing to the Spirit. At the same time, we need to realize that we've been forgiven. The joy that should bring to our lives. That we will stand before God. And we will be declared not guilty. You're not not guilty except for, and then there's a whole list of, not, not guilty. Because Jesus paid it all. We, we sing that wonderful hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You know, this is, I think, why sometimes you see Christians that just seem to be so excited about their relationship with Jesus. And I think it's because they get it. They get the fact that they have been forgiven. And I just... I kind of, my heart is struggling. I want to have the same sort of overflowing, exuberant joy that we see with, with Christians sometimes come from other places. Uh, you know, you look at in Africa or other parts of the world, and sometimes you see Christians, and they are just so on fire for the Lord. And I think sometimes our Western culture just robs us a little bit of the joy of our salvation. Do, do, do you realize what this means that you've been forgiven? It's just, it's huge. I can't, I just can't express enough this morning just how amazing this is. But just let this verse just, just sink into your hearts. That it grieved Joseph when they didn't believe that his forgiveness was complete. Well, please understand that Jesus' forgiveness is complete. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, get up. <laughs> You're embarrassing us all. You know, he said, fear not. Am I in the place of God? He said, I'm not going to judge you. He says, as for you, you thought evil against me. We know what your intention was. No question, that's all come out and it's all clear now. But God meant it for good. God used this. Yes, you did something that was wrong. But look what God has done. God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Do you realize what God has done through this? And even through our iniquity, through the things that we've done in our lives, do you realize how much God can do through those things? God doesn't ordain it or want it to happen in that sense, but God will use those opportunities if we allow him. 
course, for Joseph, he's saying to his brothers, look what God has accomplished through this. I'm not cross with you. This is all part of what God allowed and part of God's plan to save our family. Now, therefore, fear you not. Joseph says, I'll nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly unto them. Wasn't that the same as our Lord Jesus? He says to us, don't fear. God says, I'll provide for you. I'll give you all that you need. I'll provide exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. You, your little ones. And he comforted them. We've been given the comforter to remind us daily, hourly, every moment, we've been forgiven. The Lord comforts us when he's spoken so kindly unto us. Yes, we deserve wrath, but he's taken that away. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. You notice the ages are starting to come down now as we get further and further away from the pre-flood world, further away from, from Eden. The ages of man are decreasing. Some people have a real problem with this. I have no problem whatsoever. I've got no question that when our bodies were genetically closer to the original blueprint of Adam and Eve, they were perfect. But from that point, things started to deteriorate. And I've got no problem to believe that those people could have easily lived to those ages. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we read reports... Even this week there was another report talking about you know, the age that we can start to live to. And of course, the, the average age of people is going up in, in terms of you know, before they die. You know, Medical science is developing and, and coming up with all sorts of cures for so many of the, the problems and the sicknesses and the diseases that kill us. Yeah, but all that's doing is postponing the inevitable. But you know, we are starting to, to live longer with a lot of these, these cures and things that are available. Well, just go back to before we needed the cures. I mean, why is it hard to believe that they live to these kind of ages? It's not really. So Joseph lives to 110 years old. And we read that Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son, uh, sorry, the, Machir, the son Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. You know, these, these grandchildren, how wonderful would it have been for them to come and sit and talk to Joseph, you know, in his position within the land and to listen to Granddad Joseph talk to them about great-granddad Jacob. And you know that great-granddad Jacob was alive on earth at the same time as Shem, the son of Noah, was. I wonder what stories they, they talked about and they shared. I remember the, the lovely opportunities I had to speak to, to my granddad. Yeah, and we used to chat about all sorts of things, and particularly you tell me things about the war and the things that he, his involvement and what he did. And he, he was, during the war, he was an engineer. He was working up in London, um, and they moved him down to Paul um, during the war because they had a factory there. They were building guns for the Spitfires, uh, and they had nobody to to kind of be foreman to, to oversee what was going on. When he arrived, they got the factory, they got all the staff, but they hadn't made a single gun. And nobody knew how to set, set the machines up or anything. Uh, so my granddad was overseeing it. They got all the mas- machines set up. And they, they were producing a phenomenal amount of guns uh, for the Spitfires uh, during the war. And that's where my dad was born down in, in Paul and Dorset. And then after the war, Granddad went back up to London. And again, loads of interesting stories. But we used to love just chatting together about, you know, things that had gone on in his life and talking about his parents and his grandparents. And I'm thinking, that's so far back. But, you know, that goes back into the times of Spurgeon and people like that. We have very interesting conversations about what he remembers and what the world was like back then. Well, again, what was it like for, for Joseph's grandchildren coming and speaking to him and learning about these things and, and hearing, no doubt, the accounts of Adam and Eve, hearing about the fall, hearing about the Garden of Eden, learning about Cain and Abel, learning about the flood and all of those kind of things that they would have passed down to their children. 
just as a, an aside here, there's interesting evidence that's been discovered. There's a place in Egypt known as Saqqara. It's really uh, interesting conjecture. This may well have been where Joseph was based. Now, a couple of interesting reasons for that. That's just a picture of the, 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 from the walls of this place on the outside. Um, this place, you can just see about on the map up there, you've got Cairo under that Giza. We're familiar with the pyramids, of course, at Giza. And just slightly just down, just to the side of the Nile, you've got this place, Saqqara. Um, it, it was a secure place, very high walls around the city. There was room there to store uh, 40,000 cubic meters of grain, they've discovered. They've got these underground shafts that were not used for burial. They, they know that much, but they found grain in all these shafts. Clearly, they were storage places underground that had been built. Which is, of course, very interesting given all that we've been looking at and all that occurred at the time of the famine and that Joseph instructed. Another just interesting conjecture, and I'm not make a big thing of this, but I just think it's interesting. Some of you may have heard of this Egyptian uh, character by the name of Imhotep. Well, what we uh, historically told about this character was that he was a minister of the king of Egypt. That he had a very sudden rise to power, but he wasn't himself of royal blood. That Imhotep took on the office of priest for the Egyptians, that he himself was a builder and architect. He was revered as godlike. He had medical skill. Interestingly, it's said of Imhotep that he presided over seven years of famine and then seven years of plenty. Now, that's the reverse, of course, of what we find with Joseph in Scripture. But it's interesting. There was attributed power to him of the great creator God. Interestingly also that he comforts Pharaoh when distressed. He set the taxes in the land. That's not Uber, by the way. That's other types of taxes. Um, And he died also, interestingly, at the age of 110. Now, I just think that's fascinating that all of those things fit the character of Joseph because some people will argue and say, well, there's no mention of Joseph in the Egyptian history. And if he was this important, why isn't he mentioned? Well, maybe he is. Maybe this is it. There's also other interesting things we could look at as well. But one other, just aside to that, is that there was a coffin believed to be Imhotep's that was found undisturbed but empty. Now I say that because of what we're just about to to look at. Because Joseph, in verse 24, said unto his brethren, I die. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, all of these things that have been passed down to him, the land, the promise, and all that they had. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So this promise that he makes the children of Israel make now. Now, quite probably many of his brothers, if not all of his brothers, may well have died by this point. But Joseph, being aware of his father's words. Remember when Jacob came in before Pharaoh? Jacob said that we've come to sojourn in the land. We're not here to stay. We're just staying for a while. And Joseph, very mindful of that, taking on those things in that 17 years, talking to his father that they had in Egypt together, those opportunities to chat, learning again of all those those things that had happened to, to Abraham, to Isaac, that maybe... Jacob had not had an opportunity to tell Joseph before that time. Joseph clearly understands the importance of this land, the importance of remaining separate. And so he says to the children of Israel, don't leave me here, we're going. We're not staying in this place. This is temporary. You know, it's good for us not to have too firm a grip on here. We're only visiting, we're only sojourning. This isn't our home. We are citizens of heaven. That's our home. That's where we belong. You know, we're not staying here. Joseph knew that. He he wanted to impress upon the children of Israel the same, that this isn't home. Now we're going to find in Exodus 13, 19, that Moses, in obedience, takes Joseph's bones out of Egypt. As they're leaving at the time of the Passover... They're gathering together all the bits and pieces and they take all the wealth of Egypt with them. But Moses doesn't forget to take Joseph's bones. Again, there'd have been an empty coffin somewhere in Egypt. 
And in Joshua 24, we find that Joshua then, after these bones being carried around the wilderness for some 40 years, eventually get into the land. And then Joshua finally, after this period of conquering the land, buries Joseph's bones in Shechem. It's part of the territory of Ephraim, part of that which is promised to his descendants. And Joseph is buried in that place. Again, that belief in the resurrection, they wanted to be in that place, in that land. Joseph didn't want to find that on that time when the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, I believe Joseph will be amongst them, will rise first. Joseph doesn't want to rise in Egypt. He wants to rise in Israel. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. All these that I believe Jesus presented himself to after his own crucifixion as he went down and presented himself to those down in paradise and then shifted all of paradise up to heaven. For those that have died, they're going to be resurrected. We, if we're still alive and we remain, we're going to be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And we're going to get bodies that are incorruptible. And we'll be able to talk to Joseph about these things. Talks to Joseph being 110 years old. Those died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You know, this is this whole span of history we've been looking at. And you look how much of this period of time Genesis covers. Genesis covers really just somewhere around about um, 4,000 years um, of human history. It's roughly 2,000 years from, from Abraham to Jesus. Incredible. You know, this book, the book of Genesis, it begins in divine glory. As the Godhead creates the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. But this book ends in a coffin in Egypt. It begins with life and this walk with God, and it ends with these two funerals of Jacob and of Joseph and the reality of the curse. It begins in harmony in the garden, and it ends as sojourners in a strange land. But of course, this is just the beginning now because the rest of Scripture, as we said at the start of this, goes on to unveil God's plan. And it's a plan to take us back to that land, the land that is ours. Not Canaan, not the land of Israel, but heaven, so that we can resume that walk with the Lord. You know, I I find it very interesting. This week I've just been reading through as uh, just going through the Bible again in a year, and I just encourage you to, to do that. But just reading now into the book of Exodus, and it's interesting with Moses, how much Moses knew. You know, at some point, we're not told when, but at some point Moses found out that he wasn't the son of the princess of Pharaoh. He grew up in that environment, of course, but as a baby he wouldn't have understood it. At some, at some point, he becomes aware that He's from Israel. And obviously he understands God's plan. He understands that there's a land that God has promised them. All these things have been passed down to him. He's learned. The children of Israel had carried these things with them. You know, I think, you know, just as with with birds, in fact, we were talking the other day, we were just saying how amazing it is when babies are born. They know how to feed. We were talking to the girls and things, just kind of explaining some of the things that are going to be happening. But you don't have to explain to a baby how to feed. For nine months, they've not fed in the way that they will feed. But suddenly, they know what to do. They know how to suck. That instinct is there. You know, you look at birds and fish and all sorts of... they, they, They migrate. They know where to go, having never previously been to where they're going, but they know where to go. It's just instinctive. You know, and I think it's the same for the Jews. I think instinctively God has placed within them this knowledge that they have a land. Jacob knew it, though he was in the land of Egypt. Joseph knew it. And later we find that Moses just had this this knowing 
But that wasn't home. You know, and that should be the same for Christians. Once we are born again, through the Spirit working within us, there should be that instinctive knowledge that this is not home. We just finish with this story. I think I've shared this once before, but there was an account of two, apparently this is a true story, of two missionaries that had been away for many, many years, some 40 years or so of their lives, serving in a foreign country. And finally they got to the stage, they were too old and too weak to continue the ministry, so they decided to go back to America. And as they came in on a ship, it happened to be the the then president of the United States was also on this ship. He'd been away for a short trip and was coming back. And as he disembarked of the ship, there were bands there and there were crowds there and there was a big fanfare and everything else. And a big thing was made of the fact the president was there. And this couple, these missionaries, just walked off the ship together. No one there singing. No one there to welcome them. And the man just turned to his wife and said, we've been away for, for 40 years. We've been serving God the whole time. There's no one here to greet us. And the wife just turned to her husband. She said, honey, we're not home yet. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you particularly for this book that you've allowed us the privilege of, of studying and journeying through together. Father, if there's one message that sticks in our hearts and minds, Lord, let it be that, that we are not home yet. That, Lord, you have a place for us, a place you've gone to prepare for us. That is our home. That we are not, Lord, citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. Oh, and Lord, as such, may we not be like Jacob's sons. Lord, so many of them just sowing to the flesh. And then reaping corruptible rewards, Lord. May we be like Joseph, like Jacob, like even Abraham. Lord, not wanting to put down roots here because this isn't home. But looking forward to all that is ahead. Realizing, Lord, that this is just a part of the bigger picture of your plan. Your wonderful plan of redemption when you will join together all things in Christ the Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, we will all be joined together in Christ. For those that bow the knee and acknowledge that he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Father, thank you for this time of study. Thank you for this book. Lord, just keep us growing in knowledge and grace. We ask it in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the name of Yeshua. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.